0: Why did you write Lightning Flowers? Why did I write Lightning Flowers? I wrote Lightning Flowers because it was the book I needed to survive. Um, Mm. The book opens with, as you read, the day that I took three accidental shocks to the heart from my implanted cardiac defibrillator, and it was such a strange moment in terms of not having any precedence in my life. um, The medical professionals who I interacted with on that day treated it as very normal, (laughs) as though to have three 850 volt um, bolts occur inside you in the middle of uh, exercising was a normal thing. And it's this totally otherworldly experience that no one I knew other than my younger sister had experienced which is a strange aspect of the story as well. Um, And I kept thinking how in any other civilization, this would be nothing short of a spiritual transformation. You know, if someone was struck by lightning, that had meaning. But the fact that the lightning was coming from inside me and coming from something that our culture really held up as um, a miracle technology, which it can be. But I think on that day, it just became very clear to me that things were much more complicated than I thought. And yeah. I experienced the device as a predator inside me Any day. And how do I live with that type of tension? And so <laughs> I think it's, it was like this thing is supposed to be life-saving yeah. and it's in me and I can't control it and it could go off at any moment and uh, (laughs) a weird geekiness of how I'm built that what I did was start researching like literally what is it inside me and what are the other ways of holding this question. And I think um, having the experience I've had in the American medical system that this book is so much about. I knew that I wasn't alone. I knew that many, many people struggle with this healthcare system, but I also had really soaked in some of this idea that I was somehow crazy or hysterical or doing it wrong. And I think telling the story of how my body moved through these systems that are created by actual policies that are passed by actual people, it really um, grounded this sense of like, Some of the things that happened to my body didn't have to happen to my body. (laughs) And part of integrating them and living with them was really understanding what parts of the story are maybe at the core of being human that all of us actually have to um, come to understand, like what it means to have your body change and to confront illness and to face death um, and to face a changing relationship to death. But then some of it, Really uh, is the result of those choices that those people make. That I think a lot of folks in this country are sort of turning away from uh, the voice that they might have in that conversation.
1: Yeah. A lot of authors I talk to, some of them will be like, "I don't, I don't want to give too much about the book away." But how are you with spoilers? <laughs> regard. I mean, it, it's been out a while. You yeah, know? I don't so, think it's
0: possible to talk about this book very well without spoilers. And I do feel like okay, yeah. the way that they add up in the narrative is so different than the the way it, yeah. it feels to hear about them here.
1: Yeah. So I'll I'll go to the end of the book then and start there, uh, which. When I read the last page, I was before I read the epilogue, I was like, What the fuck? I'm like what what happened? What is she gonna do? Like, um, I was pissed at how you ended up but, but, but I saw how it tied back to a lot a lot through the book you talked about how storytelling isn't linear and sometimes it's chaos and and, and life and especially in this medical realm isn't always this happens, then this happens, this happens, and then we're better. But when I found out at the end how badly those previous doctors may have kind of fucked up, I I was heartbroken because of how intensely and for how long you struggled with the idea of even getting <laughs> the device put in. You never wanted it. <laughs> And then Yeah, the the accidental shocks and the wire and the and then to find out I never even needed this and then to find out nothing I can do about it because I don't have the money, the access. Oh. <sighs> if that isn't the American <laughs> story. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's what so made true. You,
1: yeah. Go ahead. I was gonna say, um I moved to Boulder the same year that you did. Oh wow. Yeah. So we lived in the same town while all this was wow, going on where you. did you live? Yeah. That's probably a conversation for another time, but <laughs> well no. So it's, it's uh South South Boulder. Um and I went to Naropa for a couple of years yeah. to get to finish my undergrad. So uh, yeah, it was kind of like I was there. As I'm reading through the story and all the places you're going to and the hospital and the doctors and the the hill and the CU and everything trippy. So you wrote the book because it was your way of surviving. Were you writing it during all of this?
0: Some of it. So I was just journaling in the summer of 2009 after I first passed out. I had been a fiction writer and a poet. And so I understood immediately when I woke up in the parking lot that I was living a pretty wild story all of a sudden. So I knew that yeah. it would be something, but I don't think I could have conceived of what this book ended up becoming. Um, I, as I write about in the book, had been a sociology major, and so now there's something very natural at, uh, around like looking back and thinking like, oh yeah, right, sociology and fiction writing is creative nonfiction. Um, (laughs) But I really didn't start viewing myself as a nonfiction writer until I had already tried to write this story a little bit as fiction in the fall of 2010. So just a few months after my partner, Sam, who's in the book, left um, a few months after I recovered from sepsis, and it just was such thinly veiled uh, nonfiction that eventually it was like... (laughs) I don't think I can understand what I need to understand about this story unless I write it as me and wrestle with it as me. And at this point, I understand illness in a way that I could craft a character going through something who's not me. And, and yet that wasn't really possible then. So certainly in 2009, 2010, I understood that I would write some of it someday, but I didn't, um, I I wasn't conceiving of it in the same way. So I actually had some parts of the journal that were very blotchy, didn't have some of what I needed. Really had to do a lot of self research looking at old emails and G chats yeah. are such an amazing yeah. resource. I didn't know that Gmail yep. saved all of that, but I used to G chat all the time in that Me era. Me too. So <clears throat> yeah, I did a lot of self research and interviews. Um, luckily, I still wrote letters to my friends back then. And a lot of them saved them because they always knew I would <laughs> write books someday. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, amazing. Nice. Um. So it wasn't until I went off to grad school in 2012, that I really understood I was writing the book, although it took a while to know what book I was writing. The second half of the book, obviously all elapsed when I had already begun lightning flowers and crowdfunded research to the African continent. I mean, I was was writing one book and all of a sudden the device vibrated inside me and I was like, "Uh, (laughs) is this going to be in the book? Should I end the book before this moment? Is this a separate book? And then obviously what happened ended up being just like such an incredible demonstration of the dark side of the technology and the dark side of the medical system. And so then I did understand that I was writing the book and living the experiences, which is a real trip to try to like take notes at every doctor's visit, not knowing whether or not you might need to recreate it in some way. Uh, The whole end of the book, I was sort of so bleary with trauma that I couldn't be on it as a writer, but I also had that nagging thing in the back of my head that was like, literally any line you write now is gold to be able to build these scenes. So I would be like, you know, half have my eyes rolling out of my head and just write down like some description of the way the doctor had worded something. Or I would, I took pictures at the Mayo Clinic of the inside of every exam room, which is why I have things like, you know, what the the rain looked like on the window and the laminated floor and the nurse's purple pants or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) so purple blazer yes 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 so I yeah I knew that I would need to and that trauma brain isn't usually going to be the the brain to remember that stuff
1: right and 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 to write from it's so difficult I mean it's it's amazing what you've done because I don't know your situation presently do you still have the device I do yeah yeah so so this is still the story like you're still in and the Chris, story. That's
0: why it ends the way it ends, which is so heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. so there was a version of the book that was about 30,000 words longer. My, <laughs> oh my god! editor at Little Brown refused to read it. <laughs> <laughs> it made me and wow. my, my agent and my agent's assistant go through and try to figure out how to do the cuts. And it really changed the book a lot. But it had been a very particular moment um, in the spring of 2019 when I was trying to write the events of the spring of 2017, and it really hadn't been that long, and I really hadn't right. resolved any of them. Every day of writing was trauma work. And so I had yeah. to be deep in my own medical records, really looking at like what Mayo had told me. And... You know, I'd sort of been holding it at arm's length as much as I could because I just needed to survive. I was so fragile by the end of that Mayo visit. I I was basically in total breakdown. And it's very weird to think that. um, So, in the moments right after the end of what is the end of Lightning Flowers right now, where the doctors tell me, you know, you're going to need to remove this wire someday, you know, the day before you need to, (laughs) Um, I basically called up an old summer job and said, do you need anyone this summer? Because I was like, I'm not going to be recovering from heart surgery. What do I do with myself? And so I got shipped to Costa Rica <laughs> five days after I found out about the wire in my heart. And it was very important at the time because I just needed to be out of that context. It was like, if I stay here in i am I don't know if I'm going to make it. I just, I don't know how to be a living person thinking about death that much And feeling so powerless in this system. And so being in Costa Rica, I was working with teens in a global leadership program. And just the sound of the surf and the rain in the jungle and having to take care of someone else's needs, it was a really important period of distraction for me and nervous system regulation. And then I landed back in the US and my agent was like, I want to sell your book this fall. And so I basically wrote the book proposal in 10 days at the Mesa Refuge in California. And then sent it to Bonnie and she went to New York and sold it that fall. So when I was writing in the spring of 2019, I really had just like pushed through all this stuff in 2017 and not had a chance to integrate it yet. And I really had to face like this ending is still true. And I don't know for how long that's going to be the suspended state of my life and my body. right? And right. it was devastating. And it also was like, you know what? This is the end of the book because it is the answer to this question that I've been asking throughout yeah. the book, which is, you know, do I want this device? What does it mean okay. to have this device? When is it life-saving? Fuck no, I
1: don't want this device. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like, um, <clears throat> yeah. I, I had expected, I was, so relational doctor at Mayo. Dr. We like, Ackerman oh and Dr. Ray. Oh God. I was like, when you were like, This is my doctor, I was like, Yeah, this is her doctor. Like, I, I can relate to you on that level of like, and uh, just the all the doctors in Boulder that you met with, and um how impersonal, uh, untrusting of you they were, and they didn't listen, and it was like Oh, this is what it's like at Mayo Clinic.
0: I wow. know. So
1: I know. I thought I thought he was gonna solve it all for you. But...
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean they did solve certain things, which is that they right. showed me that I wasn't crazy to think I could be or should be treated a certain way. And that the problem yeah. could be approached with a different kind of slowness that really takes into account the latest research. I mean, just being in touch with Dr. Ackerman and Dr. Ray since the book came out, which has been kind of a fun piece. They're both, you know, sort of my, I don't, I don't know if I could call them my friends, but, but we interact (laughs) and they're, I think, proud of the book and happy about the role they get to play. Um, But seeing just how much the research of that lab has proceeded even just in the year and a half since my book has been out is really stunning. And thinking about how slow it can be within a medical system for research on a rare condition like long QT syndrome to really filter down to all those cardiologists who were trained however many years ago. And like, yes, they need to retake Um, their boards. Yes, some of them read white papers, they go to conferences, and maybe they hear a presentation. But when you are the person with the condition that they just don't see that often, they don't get the critical mass, you know, it's almost more important to get the latest research on treating heart failure. That's the lion's share of patients in any cardiac practice. Um, And so there's this tension, I think, in the American medical system around Like, of course, not everyone is going to have access to Mayo. Like, how do we do that? But also, is it actually fair to get care for a rare condition anywhere but some of these centers of research? And how do you make Mm. that accessible? Um, They are just doing stunning work. And I think the way that long QT syndrome will be treated in the future is going to be vastly different than it is in the past. And it's already so different from in 2009.
1: So is your device on? It
0: is on. Yeah, I have about oh. four years of
1: battery life. Um, I have not
0: had luck uh, getting a practitioner to take it out. I, in four years, I think that's when I will do a push back to the Mayo Clinic to hopefully remove the system. I don't want it. I'm more afraid of living with it than living without it. But I do, I feel very lucky. I have a cardiologist right now here in New Mexico who, um, this is actually kind of a fun story. I asked Mayo if they could refer me to anyone and they sent me to this particular provider. And I was having trouble with medical trauma in the scheduling process because this doctor is most mostly in Albuquerque, sometimes in Santa Fe, and I was talking to his Albuquerque scheduler, but I needed to call a different number for Santa Fe, and the whole thing just got so confusing and I started crying, which is yeah. Um, it happens very quickly for me in anything related to the phone and <laughs> medical stuff. I can't sit on hold. I can't. I just yeah. I have the trauma reaction. So I ended up telling yeah. the woman, I'm really sorry. I need to hang up. It's not you. I'm having a medical trauma reaction. And instead, I looked this man up and I wrote him a letter and I sent him my book and I said, Hi, I'm having trouble scheduling, and here's why here is essentially my medical history. If if you are the right doctor for me, it would be great to connect with you directly. If this is very annoying to you, and you're not the right dro- doctor for me, like, that's fine. You don't have to respond. Right. You know, if if there's any part of a doctor that doesn't want to look at my book, they're not the right doctor for me, because I don't want to engage in these battle of wills. You know, I'm not a doctor, right. but I've spent eight years of my life researching my device. And (laughs) so I know a lot of things and I know about my body and we're just not gonna have those power struggles. So um, I ended up getting a call from this doctor at the end of his day. And he said, hi, it's Dr. Poku. And um, I got your book. I wanted to introduce myself and learn a little bit about you. And he spent an hour with me at my first appointment And now we actually don't have to spend much time together because we have that foundation. He allows me to text him if I have quick questions. And he said, yeah, some of my um, colleagues think it's crazy I give patients my cell phone. But what I understand is that people do not escalate and become needy if they get what they need. In reasonable, (laughs) timely manners. Like if they're terrified about something, of course they're going to escalate if they can't reach a provider and they're just on hold and on hold. So um, he's an extraordinary person. He was born in Ghana. His father is also a cardiologist and he just, um, he's been a real balm for me. So that's part of what makes it possible to just have the device on. There's never anything there. I just had a recent echocardiogram an EKG, you know, the whole workup and yeah. everything is fine. Um, so I'm just kind of waiting for it to run down and then we'll see about the next step.
1: So it's been two years, it's
0: been six years, actually six. April 29th was the day that we found the fractured wire. So oh, I'm sort wow. of right now in every month I have sort of this trauma portal that I walk through between April 29th and May 17th, where my surgeries and my um, sepsis dates sort of lie right on top of each other. So this is a very special time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, interesting time to talk. God, the sepsis. Ugh, I hated that part. I mean, when you know something's wrong because you know your body and you still, you know, can't be taken seriously, and yeah. it's, it's enraging. Yeah. Um. So, it's been six years. Your life during the book, you know, is definitely route, route with like overwhelm and confusion, and trying to solve this question of is this device worth it? Is my life worth the the effects of the device being made? And then just every day wondering you know I think you put it at one point in the book like death is living inside you do you still kind of uh, operate that way day to day or what's it my I don't know if you can hear my dog but he will not shut up (laughs) sorry (laughs) listeners no
0: worries I'm like over here having the COVID sniffles um yeah you know it's both there's I found myself in an interview recently talking about that process of feeling death following me, breathing on my neck kind of the first summer uh, right after I passed out in the parking lot. And then later during sepsis, really realizing like, oh, it's cute that you thought implanting a device could stop death. Like no one gets to stop death. Like, all of us die. Right. Like, there's literally right. all you can do is be like, okay, I'm yeah. slightly less likely to die of this particular thing now, but like, <laughs> just right. good luck controlling the world and mortality. And like, this is what it means to be a human kid. And then later yeah. on, literally feeling like I took that death inside me with the broken technology. So, there's something about that that I don't think ever changes. And it's more a question of what percentage of the time I am drawing on that. You know, for a long time, it really was a sort of daily obsession. And one of the things that's been hard about this book is that this book became my will to live for a set of years. You know, I came out of discovering the broken wire and just felt like my life was trashed. I was just having trauma symptoms all of the time. I could barely walk for a while because some of the um, trauma from the failed lead wire removal, particularly in my hip, Um, where they tried to get a clot to form after the femoral procedure. Um, You know, I was just really messed up. And Lightning Flowers, the process of writing it, required that I do basically two years of straight trauma work every day. Otherwise, I couldn't have written the book. I had to move the story through me and move it through at a pace that was actually integrating the story and not just somehow trying to, like, muscle past it. So a lot of work with a trauma therapist, a lot of work with body workers, energy workers, and at some point in the summer of 2019, as I was about to finish the first draft, I really had this panic of like, oh my God, this is my whole life. I had been living on the road in order to get it done because I'm so easily distracted. And I my landlord had me move out of my home of seven years. And so I just suddenly was like really unmoored. I was single. I was in shambles. It just was like this the, the focus point of finishing this book and making it a good book is everything. Like, what am I going to do when it's over? (laughs) And it was very weird to have it then debut in 2020 when like, I couldn't even have a party, eh? (laughs) a And sort of like come back to the world in that way that I'd anticipated. But I did feel for a short time, like all of this trauma lifted off me because I had done the thing and it was in the world and then really in the spring of 2021 about a year ago um i really crashed hard i really was like okay i'm not like getting event invitations all the time anymore i'm not making money off this like literally now is when i have to move on and like how do i move on how do i move on how do i move on um so i feel like i'm in a really tender process of trying to reconnect with some of the parts of me that weren't possible both during the trauma and also during that kind of myopic writing process and trying to remember who else I was or what else I wanted and allowing some of the things to fall away that like maybe I wanted those things and I don't want them anymore, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And what, like, what does it look like for me to be alive and want to be alive now, even carrying the knowledge that we die, <laughs> that I will die. It's um, it it's a strange kind of shamanic um,
1: experience.
0: Yeah. You know, I've, I do a ton of spiritual work. And so I'm, I'm sort of trying yeah. to understand right now. And this goes back to where we started our conversation around like, what is it that you need to live through any moment? What is it that makes it possible for you to survive and even thrive in something? I'm really studying a lot of medicine culture um, from different people around the globe? Like, what did it mean to be someone who was multiple times death initiated in other cultures? Because our culture doesn't have a place for those people. But there is a name for people like me. (laughs) And there's something about stepping into that. And having um, ways of holding the knowledge that I carry, and being of service to other people who are living through these things, because we all live through these things, because it's, you know, this is the core of being human. And when we need the medicine.
1: Yeah. I spent a lot of my time at Naropa was studying uh, like indigenous environmental issues (laughs) and environmental injustice. So, and it's been, that was 2011 that I graduated from there. But so it's been a while and this book and your process took me back to the place. And um, a part of myself that I've kind of been away from for a while. Um, What was the idea to explore the origins of your device? Always part of the idea of this book
0: from the moment of the shocks? Yes. So when I left my job in public health in 2012, I knew I was going to try to write about sex and death. (laughs) And I didn't know whether I was going to write about them together at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, the the sex book is probably my second book, and that's what I'm working on now. Okay.
1: nice. So, Can't wait.
0: Yeah, thank you. So I got into <laughs> grad school and started turning in these long, sprawly essays about the device, about my family history, about the trauma of, um, you know, the the sort of what I think of as the first round, meaning passing out in the parking lot, having the surgery, um, the wait to have the surgery, and then sepsis and my breakup. Um, and as I was writing about those, I was really still looking for what is the frame of this, you know, how sprawly is this? I originally thought that, uh, sex might be included in that book because there was a real tone I was living out then of, wow, if the medical technology isn't actually healing, if it's like. A technical application of something, but it's not—it's not the same as healing. And like, what does healing mean? What does that actually look like? So I went on this journey. um, I like went to psychic school. (laughs) There was a class called "How to Heal Yourself" at Psychic Horizons in Boulder. Uh, I had been working at a sexual health clinic and really was feeling the way that sexuality brought me into my body in a pleasurable way which I wasn't used to after that type of dramatic illness, and also how different I was in my body than other people my age because I was actually embodied. You know, the way I gave consent was really different from other people. So I was kind of swirling around like all of these different forms of healing and is this sort of like the squaring off of the Western medical versus acupuncture and sex and psychic school. (laughs) All right. And then I took That's the very shocks apart. And it took a while for the the supply chain journey to show me what it was. Um, so I got shocked in November of 2012 and I knew that I, I was looking into mining very quickly. I went to my first factory. Um, St. Jude Medical Factory to investigate the defibrillator and see whether or not it had conflict minerals in in it about a month later. So by December 2012. But then I had this whole year of like really learning about mining from all directions, looking at projects in the U.S., looking at projects out of the U.S., all parts of the world. What are the worst case scenarios? What are the best case scenarios? And I kept not getting grants, I think, because people thought I was insane <laughs> to be thinking that about this was project, project, which yeah. is legit. Um, but that's when I really got steely-eyed and was like, okay, we're going to crowdfund this. And I ran the Kickstarter right. in the spring of 2014, and we raised 17 okay. grand in 20 days. And I left a month later, oh. and then I came back from this journey to Madagascar, in which I had, had kind of no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and suddenly I had what? so much material, and it just got very messy around, like, what does this book want to be? Like, how much of it is it about the indigenous land rights and extractive industries? And how much of it is about the medical system? And how do you talk about the relationship between those two? How do I uh, convince someone I can pull this off? And so that's what's interesting about that last round of trauma occurring a few years later. It really sort of balanced out the overemphasis on research that I think could have occurred. Right. I think the research ended up being really important, but it's more about all these different types of factors driving toward the same understanding that this device is not as simple and
1: life-saving as we think. Yeah. Have you ever seen the film? I heart Huckabee. I haven't. Okay. (laughs) In a way. All you were just saying kind of reminds me of it. Um, But you do a phenomenal job of showing that all those many relationships globally and how it relates to you as an individual in America in her body. And even before uh, everything happened, before you first passed out, you were very kind of in your body to begin with, right? Rock climbing being part of the land in Wyoming and sports and things like that. Um, I have, uh, I'm writing a memoir that I wouldn't say it's like a medical trauma memoir to the extent that yours is, but definitely like, uh, something happened when I was 13 and after that my life was different. <laughs> like, um, and I'm still at 36 trying to get back into my body. um, and in writing my memoir, you know, I've done a lot of therapy, but I haven't done trauma body work, which is I'm glad you're sharing about that because I'm like, what would you do? Like, yeah. what do you do? What do I do? And I'm at uh, kind of the opposite where I'm about to turn my memoir into a short story collection or like autofiction because I can't access it. Where you were like, I can't access it if it's not. A memoir, which is an interesting, uh, interesting difference. Um, So for someone trying to access memories, and I was thirteen when I had my accident, but since a long time ago, it's not as fresh. But it, I know it still lives in my body. Yeah, because when I started writing, (laughs) I just I went nuts. I'm like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I haven't it was my MFA project. so I have my first draft, but I haven't touched it. I'm just like, no, no, i don't I don't want to go there again unless I'm turning it into a work of fiction, which I've never done, and now it suddenly seems really fun and exciting to go back to the material. Mm. But what can be said about how to access medical trauma memories to write about them? Yeah. That is such a great question. So I don't
0: know if you've seen that some of my other work, I now call myself a trauma writing doula.
1: (laughs) I I did see that on your
0: Facebook. Yeah, I kept, I kept attracting creative coaching clients who were writing about trauma. And ultimately, you know, creative coaching wasn't for me in that, I'm not a good person to hold others accountable timelines, word <laughs> counts, page count well, like that's not that's not not me. Right. it's also not how trauma works in the body and so a lot of the right. work that I do with people in that regard comes not only out of sort of western style study of trauma but also this experience of birthing lightning flowers and I think when we are thinking about the way that trauma lives in the body and, how it will make good art or not make good art a significant part of that comes down to what our body-based practices are for being in those moments and what types of supports we have for that so um one one way of thinking about this is like when you're approaching that story when you sit down to work on that where do you feel it first And have you developed yet the ability, which maybe you have since you've been doing body work specifically around trauma, which I find is the best way to develop these muscles, um, really noticing the first moment of activation, where it occurs and pausing. My big um, tagline is move at the pace of integration. That's really, really slow. It's not how, writers talk about other projects, there's an incredible amount of pressure in the writing world to get your thousand words a day or get your this, get your that, be on timelines, discipline yourself. Usually if we have trouble moving forward, there's a kind of like self-whipping that needs to be done or we pay other people to push us. And that can be really appropriate for certain types of projects, but it's not appropriate for trauma because- Actually being able to work with what's there depends on the ability to stay in that place and not overload yourself, to stay kind of close to the window of tolerance. So, you know, you approach the thing, you feel it somewhere in your body. Can you pause and actually feel it there in your body and be able to trust yourself to move whatever is there in the way it wants to be moved. So for me, writing lightning flowers, you know, I mentioned before there's a scene where I'm coming out of surgery. Um, they've tried to remove a wire. It has, the procedure has failed. The wire has snapped off. They ended up needing to do a femoral incision. And so then you have to create a clot at the femoral arteries so that <sighs> you don't bleed out that every seems- time the heart beats. Yum. <laughs> that, scene- <laughs> it's- that scene was like, I was Feeling that. Oh my God. (laughs) It's really intense. And for me, you know, I understood that I had been clamped at my groin to the bed, but I didn't know what that was called. I didn't know how to describe it. My view was of someone in intense pain, sort of looking up at the nurse. How do I describe that for readers in ways that are medically accurate and useful, concise? Like it's got to be clear and not overly muddied. By the fact of my pain even though i do need to write my pain and so yeah. what i had to do in order to write that scene was find youtube videos of the procedure
1: Shut up! I'm not kidding and no. when i pressed no, play I that when i
0: pressed play <sighs> it was like can i get like how far can i get before i start feeling it in my body sometimes it was like three seconds and then i would pause it and i would let things move sometimes it was crying sometimes it was screaming sometimes it was shaking And then you're like, okay, that was enough. And then it's like time to go for the walk, time to take the nap, time to do some supportive yoga. And then you can go back in, you press play and see how long you have and moving it in little tiny chunks. And what that enabled me to do, you know, processing it through like that, it's basically peeling off layers of the somatic experience so that eventually you you end up with more capacity to do the intellectual work then you're not just in your reptilian brain in the trauma but you're actually shifting the experience you have more access to uh, your neocortex and can start taking notes on like okay here's what that looks like here's what that looks like what is that called and i i do something called prepping it out where i make lists of details Like little scraps of sentences that I might use. Um, So I'm watching it, I'm taking the scraps, and then I can pause and try to assemble those scraps into a paragraph. And it's a little bit more clinical. Again, it uses um, the most human part of our brain, the, the neocortex, the newest part of our brain intellectualizes versus just getting bogged down in that reptilian brain. But you can't do that high level work until you've processed that more animal layer of it. And so I was moving so slowly. I was working with an incredible therapist who was trained in somatic experiencing. And so I would start telling her a story. And my tendency was to barrel through it like a train, just like talk faster and faster and faster trying to get it out. (laughs) And she would force me to pause and she would be like, hey, I saw you just um, hold back like a, a sob or I saw you move your shoulder in this way. Like, what would it be like? What would it feel like? if we opened our shoulders. And often that would create some huge reaction where my body was strategically shutting down its own experience so that I could move forward and live through it. But if you want to process it, you have to catch all those little body movements. And shifting the body meant crying. And her rule was kind of like, we cry till we're out of crying. (laughs) The whole session was like, I would try to say something and then it would come out as like, weep, 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 weep. And I would try to say something again and she would shift me, but I was moving something. That type of crying is not, it's not a waste. It's very productive. And it trained me to stop suppressing every reaction I was having. You can't watch the YouTube of the horrible procedure if you're just going to suppress through it, like that is not nice to your body. And so really having um, the relationship with yourself where you feel the subtle activation change, where you're willing to pause, you're not prideful and invested in barreling through, you're okay taking the time. You know that to nap is not to fail, (laughs) to take the walk or get in a bathtub is actually a part of writing, not the opposite of writing. And I just really um, learned that some of these things that feel immovable or unaccessible are accessible. And I've done everything from sound therapy to Reiki to hypnotherapy. Uh, I've worked with someone who called herself an emotional alchemist. I mean, we really access things from a lot of different Realms. The other side of this, though, is really craft. So, you're talking about how if you have fractured memories, if they're really old, they don't necessarily come together. This is why it's so important to follow writers who are writing trauma that doesn't rely on continuous narratives. Um, and the expectation of the traditional arc. Carmen Maria Machado is always one who comes to mind. Lydia Yuknovich, you know, these are brilliant folks who learned how to fashion something out of pieces. And there can be an arc that feels satisfying to readers out of those pieces. And sometimes what we're feeling when it feels impossible to write something as nonfiction, because of the fracturedness, we just haven't found the frame yet. Maybe there's some way of asking a question about our experiences that brings our current experience or our experience at a different time of life into um, into the piece where there's something that's continuous that we can use as the foundation for reflecting back into the fractured pieces. Um, so I think there can be a lot of craft aspects to looking at structure, looking at the framing of the question, um, considering like who we are as a character, like which story are we deciding to tell and right. allowing the pieces that we have to find a home within that, as opposed to trying to build the story just out of those.
1: Yeah. Um, I feel like a coward in this realm because. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, like. <laughs> <laughs> like last year I I had we had a little kind of she shed podcast studio writing shed built for me in the backyard I could go sit in there and I could sit down with my with my story and do what you said like feel where I can can already feel it just thinking about it where it starts but I'd much rather like Open a beer and <laughs> oh, sing, sister. Smoke a cigarette and stuff. But like, this is not that's fun. what I do. <laughs> I have had times in my life where I've been in it. Like, yes, I'm going to process. I'm going to work through. I'm going to feel it. I'm going to move it. And for many years now, I'd probably at least three or four, I guess since since my MFA. <laughs> God damn MFA's. Um, I'm just not into it. I'm like, I've lost that spiritual side of my, or it's not lost it, but it's somewhere inaccessible right now. And I, part of me is just like, let that be what it is right now, yeah. and you'll 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 make your way back. And part of me is scared I never will. So. That's
0: so well said, Chris, because I think there's a tension here around. Not everyone is obligated to process all of their trauma. Not everyone is obligated to write trauma stories. There may be other things a person has to say about the world, and that's where they prefer to do their writing and do their living. Ultimately, resistance to processing these stories so that we can tell them is the body's way of protecting us. The body knows exactly how hard it's going to be, and the body's whole job is to keep us alive. And so the body developed All these extensive physiological and psychological structures to hold that in. And (laughs) it's strong
1: right now. Yeah.
0: To knock on the door and be like, hey, we'd like to dismantle those structures that keep us safe, really creates a reaction where the body's like, no, no, that's not wise. (laughs) Like, let's not do that. And so if you're going to approach that place. You have to have the relationship both with yourself and with your support structures outside of that work you know the the great therapist the great body worker the people in your life who understand what you're trying to do where you are actually going to have the time and the space to do it and not be trying to live through other difficult things at the same time i it's really hard to talk about this stuff when people's uh, trauma is something like racism, because in some way that trigger never goes away, right? Like these things are still coming up. But I do wanna point out that I was not doing this extensive processing and writing work while I was still undergoing the fresh traumas. You know, I wasn't trying to do this writing at the Mayo Clinic. I wasn't trying to do this like (laughs) right before I had another heart surgery. You have to have capacity. And so what is it in a life that creates capacity or doesn't create capacity? Sometimes it's really not time to do this stuff. And for a lot of people during the height of the pandemic was not the time to do this stuff. They were already overloaded. And there can be that subtle opening of the horizon that then we're like, oh, God, but I don't wanna. And the question that I have for anyone approaching that moment is just, is this the spiritual thing that you must do? Because I think there's a group of us where it's, it's actually not, I mean, it's an option, of course, any of us can make a decision to do it or not do it on any given day. But do you feel that soul level mandate where there's something essential about your life that you're not showing up to and that you're actually not going to become who you're supposed to be this lifetime? You know, who are you? Who does the world need you to be? What does it take to step into that? And what would it look like to actually carve the space and support to approach this process? Knowing that the first day literally might just be the three minutes, remember? Like I pressed play and I got three seconds before the pause. And, and sometimes that's the whole capacity. Um, yeah. But I, I think it's useful for those of us who are avoiding this work to really come to our own understanding of like, why? Why would I do this? Is it because I feel some pressure that everyone tells me this is a great story to tell? Or is it because I know that there's someone I need to become. And that's, that's sort of the call that you can ignore a certain number of times, but eventually you have to answer.
1: Yeah. God. I mean, it's 110%. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm the person that feels that soul mandate and yeah, there's something to be said. I haven't really thought about my, uh, experience of the pandemic much (laughs) when it first, I know when it first, when when things first shut down, I was personally thrilled. (laughs) Um, I, I, I immediately just dove into myself. I took, you know, I, it was a real year of getting back into my body and loving myself and beginning to feel and work through that stuff, um, to, I back, right back into the protective state, and <clears throat> been here a while, so I, so I know both sides of it, it's like, yeah. I know what it's like to access and move that trauma, but I also know what it's like to be like, I refuse right now, and my systems and structures that are protecting me are up, like, I don't know, it's, it's, I beat myself up a lot. I'm like, I'm 36. How long does this have to take? When am I going to figure out who I am supposed to be in the world and how my story does serve? And I don't even know who I am still. Sorry. We're getting real deep with this one. <laughs> uh,
0: this, this I might
1: is where so many writers are,
0: Chris. I think it's actually the most useful conversation we can have because that, that tension of like, I need to live a good life. I need to live a daily life. I don't want to be in the trauma trenches all the time. And then also like, why can't I let go of that sense that there is actually something that I'm supposed to be showing up to here. And, you know, my experience, I often joke that the only reason this book is done is because I thought I was gonna die before I finished it. So I literally was sort of like running at the pace of the devil snapping the whip behind me. (laughs) But I do think that there's a way, if we ignore this work long enough, often something will happen to really rock bottom us to where we can't not do it and And like what's the pressure i've had
1: that more than once (laughs) (laughs) is that normal or should i have listened the first time for fuck's sake
0: you know wherever you are is wherever you are my friend
1: (laughs) i will say i haven't sat in a therapist's office face to face since The pen and I've had my my video sessions, but I haven't, you know, I don't have a support system right now to to make that happen. And I'm like, well, maybe that's maybe that's where I should start. Yeah, yeah, that can be a step one. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Lightning Flowers comes out in paperback in two days. Days, two days. I love paperbacks. I I only have your uh, book on the Kindle. So I'll probably get the paper back. Great. Too. Um, she has a new cover. Okay. Fun. It looks cool. It looks. I love both the covers. Um, but so you had just kind of ended out here. You had begun to mention some writers that do kind of unruly trauma narratives really well, like Carmen Maria Machado and uh, Lydia Yukinovich. Who else could you recommend in that realm? Love Lydia, by the way. I, I was going to ask if you had read Verge, which is not nonfiction, but it's still very, feels very trauma. I have not read it. Adjacent. I haven't okay. read it yet. Man, I'm
0: always so a swirl with so many books to talk about. <laughs> and then i right. have in my head yeah. hard. You know, one that know. I'm really interested in lately is... Brian Broom's book, Punch Me Up to the Gods. It just won the Kirkus prize this fall. Okay. And he's writing about being a black gay man in America. And he has got this very interesting structure where the through line for the book is him on a bus watching this father and son interact. And you can really see the father training the son how he's supposed to be a tough black man. And uh, so that through line then enables the other essays in the book to be a little a chronological or more thematic. I mean, they're still loosely chronologically organized, but um, the essays don't have to sort of march forward in the same way because that bus scene does. And the right. essays are just incredibly, um, difficult and electric and beautiful and really take us from one place to another place throughout their arc. So that's some really difficult trauma writing that gets very, um, there are a couple points where Brian is writing about the time that he was living as an addict and the way he manages the voice and the narrative is really stunning. There's one section he inserts, uh, that's kind of his mother's perspective out of nowhere. And it really works and does a lot of work for the book. So that's a good one in terms of the creativity of how do you sort of spin around a life that has a lot of trauma, but not either feel like it's too play by play or feel like the narrative is just too all over the place. Uh, He really found that narrative distance of like, here's the adult version of me kind of reflecting on all these things as I'm in this
1: yeah i I think i just I just pulled that up and looking at the cover. I saw it a lot at um, awP a few weeks ago, and a friend was like, You have to read read that. yeah, so now I will. yeah,
0: there's another great one, um Jasmine Ward, Men We Reaped, which is about mm. uh, a series of deaths of her loved ones, all of whom are black men. And she does this really interesting thing where she discusses the deaths in reverse chronological order. and It's just a great example of how structure and the framing of a book can make sense of kind of as much or as little as we want. We can we can make the choice to really trim things out. She could have written about each boy as their own book, frankly, but she really got down to this question of like, yeah, any one of these deaths might look like just just one random thing that happened or one tragedy, but like, here's this pattern of all of these black men in my life dying. And what is the sense we make of it? And how do I live past it as a black woman? And so I find myself really interested in structures like that, that provide a map for people to really get into like, what question do I wanna ask through this story? It's not just about like, oh, trauma happened to me. It's about how do we, make sense of something in particular and use structure as a natural way to help a reader do that.
1: When you say in lightning flowers, your question was, what, you know, was this device worth it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's roughly it. Yeah. What does it mean for a device to be life-saving? Is this device life-saving? The personal question is of course, like, should I have one? (laughs) And so all of the different factors, environmental and social and systemic and personal sort of collide together. But I think more largely it is that reckoning with like, when we talk about a life-saving medical technology is it actually so? How should we consider that? Because, you know, some people um, on Goodreads or whatever, they'll sort of go after me for having traveled to Madagascar to do this research and spent environmental resources on that flight. When, <laughs> you know, why is she obsessed with her defibrillator above our cell phones? And the the basic point for me is that form of question asking, like, are we even paying attention to the question when we think about, oh, that's a life-saving object? Like, how are we conceptualizing of what that even means? And can we even see all the invisible parts to that? And it is most personally relevant for me to think about this one technology. But the question then actually extends to everything.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for for chatting with me. And uh, where can where can folks find more of your stuff? Or or you have a website? Yes, we it's share? just
0: catherinestandifer And I'm going to be um, at the Jackson Hole Writers Conference this summer. I'll be on a little bit of a mini book tour that I'm trying to build for the paperback, since everything for the hardcover uh-huh. was. Um, first virtual uh yeah. and i'm on twitter and instagram at girl Makes fire all right thank you so much awesome. for having me oh thank you pleasure.